Good evening, everyone, and welcome. I'm Greg Sesek from the Programs Department, and thank you for coming. Uh, if you haven't already, pick up our new Compass newsletter, the library newsletter. Uh, this is our November and December edition. It talks about all of our programs. Uh, if you don't receive it and would like to, there's a sign-up sheet on the table in the back, either for mailing or we can email it to you. Um, I would request that uh, if you take photography, uh, take pictures tonight, please don't uh, use a flash. It's very distracting to the, uh, to the author who's reading. Thank you. Carla Kaplan is the Davis Distinguished Professor of American Literature at Northeastern University, where, as the founding director of the university's Humanities Center, she created a conversational hub dedicated to diversity. She has held positions at Yale University, the University of Southern California, and the University of Illinois. Dr. Kaplan has received numerous academic honors and fellowships, including the Robert D. Klein Award and the John Simon Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship. Her previous books include Zora Neale Hurston, A Life in Letters, which was the first published collection of major African-American women's letters, and the Erotics of Talk, Women's Writing, and Feminist Paradigms. She is also the editor of numerous works of African-American literature, including Hurston's long-lost book of folklore, Every Tongue Got to Confess, Negro Folk Tales from the Gulf States. Nella Larson's Harlem Renaissance novels, Passing and Quicksand, and a lost work of, of the black experience, Dark Symphony, by Elizabeth Laura Adams, as well as occasional pieces for such publications as the Los Angeles Times and The Nation. She lectures widely on literature and culture. Miss Anne in Harlem draws on Kaplan's 30 years as a white scholar in black studies to explore cultural crossovers, and we're happy to announce that just this week, Publishers Weekly named Miss Anne in Harlem one of the top 10 books for 2013. Her next book, a biography of Jessica, Jessica Mitford, will be published by HarperCollins. Thank you, Dr. Kaplan. I'm going to move this mic down. That's probably going to be better. How's that? How's the sound? Um, I need somebody in the back. Who, will you tell me? It's very rare that my voice goes soft. You've got to kind of do the other if it goes. Okay. Um, thank you all for being here, and I really want to um, thank the organizers and the staff here at Enoch Pratt for having me. Um, Judy and Greg, thank you for all the prearranging. Um, Graphic Jack, where'd Graphic Jack go? He got away. Uh, he got away for, for making the biggest me I've ever seen. Which street is that on? Wow, I was just, I'm still trying to sort of like wrap my mind around that. Um, so let me begin by talking a little bit about the phrase Miss Anne. Um, because, and, I, and I want to talk a little bit about why I use that phrase in the title of the book, Miss Anne in Harlem. Um, because I've discovered in the course of doing the work for this book over seven years that Miss Anne is a phrase with complete and instant 
recognition in the black community. And it actually has a very layered and complicated history. I've had people tell me they're really glad I use the phrase, and I've had people tell me they're really offended that I've used the phrase. Arnold Rampersad told me he thought it was a really cheeky move. I can live with that. Um, and as far as we know, the derivation of the phrase Miss Anne, we, we're not 100% sure. There is no specific Anne it refers to. But as far as we know, the phrase comes from black southern female domestics who were forced into the homes and the kitchens of white employers 14, 15, 16, 17, 19 hours a day and could not afford to disrespect, disregard, dismiss, or contest with those white women employers however they were treated by them to their faces. But behind their back, they could deride them as Miss Anne. And we're pretty sure that the derivation of the term Miss Anne, which is a derisive term for white women, comes from southern black female domestics and precedes the Harlem Renaissance. So one of the reasons I use the term is it has this immediate recognition in black communities, and at least until this book came out, it had no recognition in white communities. You say Miss Anne in any room full of black people and everybody kind of snickers, particularly if you're a white person using the term. You say Miss Anne in any room full of white people and everybody goes, Miss what? I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and I, that was important to me because it's a reminder of the extent to which we continue to live in divided worlds where something can be deeply meaningful to one community and relatively meaningless to another community. And that was true as well in the 1920s when the women I write about in this book who wanted to be part of the black Harlem Renaissance, a very unlikely desire on their parts, were looking for acceptance by the black community. And the title is a signal that I'm looking at Miss Anne from a number of lenses, how she saw herself and also how the black community saw her, because the black community was very skeptical about what these white women could contribute and indeed worried that they would be a nuisance at best or a danger at worst. So that's just a little bit of the background um, of the phrase Miss Anne and my use of it. When I first set out in search of Miss Anne in Harlem, I found about five dozen women who were more than what was referred to then as just tourists or, you know, the phrase slummers, right? Sometimes used ironically, sometimes not. Women who put Harlem at the center of their lives and centered their lives on its renaissance. These white women were hostesses, editors, activists, philanthropists, patrons, writers, wives, lovers, and mothers. Some were wealthy, looking for a place to put their money in the arts. Others lost their money because of their political commitments. Some were Jews, not yet considered white in American culture, but suddenly very white indeed when they crossed into Harlem. Some of the white women who became important contributors to the Harlem Renaissance were matronly and mature. Others were classic, even iconic flappers and new women. No one had ever put these women together as a group before. No one had looked at them seriously. No one had asked them to explain why they crossed social lines that were then seen as impenetrable, what they were seeking, or what their experience of experimenting with identity was like for them. But in their day... They were asked that question all the time. 
Trinidadian poet Alfred Cruikshank, for example, wrote a poem asking why British heiress Nancy Cunard... I've forgotten to move my slides. <laughs> this is Fania Marinoff. It's a real classic Miss Anne in Harlem. There she is in Harlem. And that's Nancy Cunard holding her Negro anthology. So let me back up to the beginning of that sentence. I got so excited at old friends being here, I forgot about my slides. Don't let me do that again, you guys. <laughs> Trinidadian poet Alfred Cruikshank, for example, wrote a poem asking why British heiress, there she is, Nancy Cunard, threw in her lot with black people at the expense of the vast Cunard fortune, which she lost. She was completely disinherited when she refused to renounce or hide her black lover, jazz musician Henry Crowder. Cruikshank asked her in his published poem, What was it, madame, made you to enlist in our sad cause, your all of heart and soul? And she answered him in a published poem. My friend, she wrote, maybe I was an African one time. The women I, we'll, go, we'll come back to that. The women I write about in this book, trying hard not to be dismissed as Miss Anne, all believed to varying degrees that they could and that they should embrace blackness, that they could and should take responsibility for whiteness, an unheard of idea at the time, and that they could and should try to be something other than what they were born. White school teacher Lillian E. Wood passively passed as a black writer. No one could imagine that her scathing depiction of white women's complicity with black lynchings, she paints white women simply as monsters, could have been penned by a white woman. White Barnard founder Annie Nathan Meyer wrote a play, Black Souls, too provocative for the American stage in its insistence that white women desired black men. When the Provincetown Playhouse finally tried to stage the production in 1932 with the Scottsboro trials unfolding as the backdrop, it was closed after only 10 performances. But it was always referred to in the black press as an exemplary Negro drama. White philanthropist Charlotte Osgood Mason, born to wealth and married to New York's leading spiritualist physician, he held all the seances for the east side of New York, believed that she was what she called a born sensitive. I have no idea what they'll try to do with that. Who could heal modernity's psychic woes by channeling black energy and creativity, an idea that went to the heart of the modern primitivist movement. Perched on Park Avenue, Charlotte Mason called herself a black god and a better Negro than the Negroes she knew and funded in Harlem. All of these white women felt that they could and should, as Nancy Cunard put it, quote, speak as if I were Negro myself. Now, that's something we wouldn't dare try today, and we would immediately be accused of appropriation if we did it. But even more remarkable than the fact that all of these white women felt they could and should speak as if I were Negro myself is that in Harlem, they were often invited and encouraged to do just that. Harlem in the 1920s was black America's mecca. The symbol, as Adam Clayton Powell Sr. put it, of liberty and the promised land to Negroes everywhere. Harlem was a place, 
But even more importantly, Harlem was an ideal and an idea. The idea, after decades of devastating racism, of black self-determination and self-definition. And the idea, entirely novel at the time, of eschewing white values and standards to instead embrace blackness. Harlem was the vibrant embodiment of the brand new notion that black is beautiful. Listen to Harlem Renaissance novelist Nella Larson rhapsodize about what she dubbed the fantastic motley of blacks making up Harlem's moving mosaic. Sooty black, shiny black, taupe, mahogany, bronze, copper, gold, orange, yellow, peach, ivory, white. White, you need to know, having always been a skin color found for complex historical reasons in black communities. Elaine Locke's essay, Enter the New Negro, anchoring his 1925 collection, Harlem, Mecca of the New Negro, put the sense of things at the time this way. We are achieving something like a spiritual emancipation. The vital inner grip of prejudice has been broken. The Negro today is inevitably moving forward under the control largely of his own objectives. Deep feeling of race is at present the mainspring of Negro life. The pulse of the Negro world has begun to beat in Harlem. Well, no wonder that one of the most common sayings from 125th Street to St. Nicholas and from the world-famous cabarets to the County Cullen Branch of the New York Public Library was, I'd rather be a lamppost in Harlem than the governor of Georgia. (laughs) Feel free to adopt that. I'd rather be a lamppost in Baltimore. I don't know. You might be able to make it work. The radical journal The Messenger gave a yearly prize for the best essay written by New York Negroes on why they liked Harlem. The 1927 winner, who lived on 136th Street, wrote, Harlem is black life perfected. Crowds of faces, black, brown, yellow, parading 7th Avenue, women clad in elegant finery followed by their less pretentious sisters in gaudy imitations. Workers who pass, returning to Harlem for association with kindred spirits. Writers who enjoy us and write uncensored recollections. Street speakers who enjoy their exhorting. Protest and mass meetings that die a morning. Harlem, it is life, life, and then in capital letters this big, life. We suck its breast and enjoy it. 1920s Harlem was magic. Thanks in part to the proliferation of journals and magazines which the Renaissance generated, and there were hundreds in just the first few years of the Harlem Renaissance, and thanks as well to the stories which were carried back and forth across the Great Migration away from the South's Jim Crow, Harlem was a national idea, an imagined community for blacks from every corner of the country. In his autobiography, Langston Hughes remembered, quote, I was in love with Harlem long before I got there. Once Hughes did get to Harlem, however, he found a more complex 
and even vexing place than he'd imagined. The nation's symbol of black self-definition was not only a black Mecca, it was also becoming a white playground. Gay and straight, male and female, white would-be revelers descended on Harlem from taxis and subway stations in spring weather and in snowstorms, individually and by guided tour, in hopes of an evening's dose of the life-giving force they believed in and that popular culture reinforced through a specific tourist industry targeted for whites visiting Harlem. And there were guidebooks written just for whites who wanted to see Harlem, and the chapters on Harlem are really shocking. And there were these pleasure maps printed just for white people to go see Harlem. It's quite an industry, actually. One travel writer who wrote for that industry gushed, here is the Momart of Manhattan, a great place, a real place, an honest place, and a place that no visitor should even think of missing. But visit Harlem at night, it sleeps by day. Now, this is a ludicrous idea, right? Harlem did not sleep by day. Harlem was filled with people whose alarm clocks were going off, who were late getting ready for work, who were trying to get the kids to change into more appropriate clothing and get some breakfast into them before they were bundled off to school, who were arguing with their landlords and their landladies. The only way you could say Harlem sleeps by day is if you imagine it as a white playground. That idea was becoming so prevalent in the 1920s that as writer, diplomat, and civil rights activist James Weldon Johnson put it, Harlem was becoming the great mecca for the sightseer, the pleasure seeker, the curious, the adventurous. The Crisis Journal of the NAACP went even further, began calling Harlem's renaissance a moral vacation for whites. And referring to Harlem as a place, as black writer Wallace Thurman put it, for whites to do openly what they only dared to do clandestinely before. Some of the most celebrated black entertainment venues in Harlem began catering to white dollars at the expense of local blacks. The famous Cotton Club, for example, as I suspect many of you here know, had a whites-only policy for its patrons. Langston Hughes wrote, At almost every Harlem upper-crust dance or party, one would be introduced to various distinguished white celebrities there as guests. It was a period when Charlestown preachers opened up shouting churches as sideshows for white tourists. It was a period when white writers wrote about Negroes more successfully, commercially speaking, than Negroes did about themselves. It was the period, God help us, when Ethel Barrymore appeared in blackface in Scarlet Sister Mary by white writer Julia Peterkin. It was the period when the Negro was in vogue. You know, for a minute I thought I was having a call and response moment, but I'll watch for it to come again. Now, it should come as no surprise that blacks did not, in the main, find this white takeover of their site of self-definition to be a welcome phenomenon. Harlem Renaissance physician and writer Rudolf Fischer, in his essay, The Caucasian Storms Harlem, went, took it all the way back to slavery when he asked, is this interest, this 
interest, this fashion of whites for black Harlem, is this interest akin to that of the Virginians on the veranda of a plantation's big house, sitting genuinely spellbound as they hear the lugubrious strains floating up from the Negro quarters? Time was when white people went to Negro cabarets to see how Negroes acted. Now, Negroes go to those same cabarets to see how white people act. This is a close-up of one of those actual pleasure maps. Yeah, they're, they're, and some of them are even worse, by the way. All of a sudden, popularity could be very offensive, as you can see from this close-up. The idea that blacks should provide a social safety valve for stifled white passions was especially insulting, as was the pressure to perform a version of blackness that satisfied whites' expectations. Ordinary Negroes, Langston Hughes maintained, did not like being observed like amusing animals in a zoo. One black newspaper called the influx of whites into Harlem a most disgusting thing to see. Eslanda Robeson, Paul Robeson's wife, spoke for many who didn't feel comfortable saying so in public. She said everything in public. This was a woman who never held back, even when perhaps she should have. But she spoke for many when she said in public, Harlem, uh, that, that, quote, only Negroes belong in Harlem. Harlem is a colored community. The white person occasionally seen in the streets of Harlem does not really belong here. But even Eslanda Robeson also conceded that some good might come from being observed by whites. This mixing, she wrote, and she was referring mostly to the cabaret and nightclub phenomenon, this mixing is the best thing that could happen to solve the Negro problem in America. When white people come to know the Negro as he really is, whether or not they decide to like him, become bosom friends with him, or marry him, the greatest single barrier will be broken down. Now, Eslanda Robeson had special reasons to resent white women, being married, as I think some of you know, to a man who was altogether too popular with them. And by the way, there's a brand new biography out of Eslanda Robeson. But mixed and contradictory feelings about the interracialism fueling the Renaissance abounded in Harlem. Langston Hughes excoriated the Harlem Vogue, but he was best friends with Harlem's most infamous white man, Carl Van Vechten, about, about whose Harlem doings there was even a popular song encouraging like-minded whites, and Van Vechten single-handedly took more like-minded whites up to Harlem than anybody else. The song encouraged whites who shared his sensibility to go to Harlem and, like Van Vechten, get ready for the rhyme, go inspectin' in Harlem. Hurston invaded against white tourists looking for what she called pet Negroes, but she conducted Harlem tours for whites. And Walter White, and there was a Walter White before the TV show, folks. Okay, how many of you are Breaking Bad fans? Just me and John. Okay, th three of us will admit it. All right. Walter White, NAACP activist, um, in the midst of NAACP boycotts against blackface, went out of his way to secure white torch singer Libby Holman 
to headline one of his most important racial fundraisers, begging her to perform Monin Low, which was her blackface performance in which the, this white torch singer plays a black prostitute, and she does it in brownface, lamenting over and over again, lordy, lordy, how her sweet man pimp was going to leave her. All of this was part, to borrow a phrase from Michael Dyson, of the ecology of race at the time. And so were conflicting ideas about the very nature of race itself. Some believe that race was an essence, immutable, and to be celebrated. Many believed that it was a social construction, a dangerous myth to be decried and deconstructed. Virtually all Harlemites adhered to an idea that race, whatever it was, whether essence or social construction, was an ethics, an obligation toward those with whom one's lot was cast. Blacks who might have passed but did not, like Walter White. I don't know how many of you have seen photographs of Walter White. This is a man so white, he's almost translucent, but who had black ancestry. And he never allowed himself to be identified as a white man. Blacks who might have passed like white, and white had to work really hard not to pass because everybody assumed he was white. Blacks who might have passed but didn't, like him, were lionized as voluntary Negroes, and they were held up as models for their community throughout the Harlem Renaissance. Now, that lionization of voluntary Negroes may have given whites and some blacks the idea that whites also should and could volunteer for blackness as an act of empathy and solidarity, as a pioneering proof of identity's mutability and flexibility. Now, Walter White could take advantage in defining himself of the very one-drop rule of blackness that he was working so hard to contest. The nation's idea, which was throughout the mainstream, that one drop of black blood made you black, an idea that had been crucial to the economics of slavery, and yet White, who's contesting this rule everywhere he can and fighting it as a very, very um, dangerous myth, can also take advantage of that notion to claim his own blackness, because he's got to go way back to find those drops. But the Whites who were seeking to cross over into black Harlem could not take recourse to ancestral drops. Their journey had to be based on something slightly different. The crisis editorialized against whites treating Harlem as a moral vacation, but it also endorsed forms of imaginative cross-racial identification through which whites could take a vacation from and even temporarily vacate their own whiteness. Towards the end of the 1920s, the crisis began to transform its poet's page. And back then, it's hard to imagine now, but every newspaper had a page for poetry. Can you imagine this now, opening the New Yorker and finding the poet's corner? So unlikely, right? Every newspaper had a poet's page. And the crisis, and all the black newspapers had it too. The crisis started transforming its poet's page into a forum for white views of race, 
mostly white women's views of race, which frequently included precisely such attempts to volunteer for blackness by taking an imaginative journey across the line. I just want to share with you a a few lines of one of the poems that I actually use as the frontispiece of the book. So this is the poet's page reproduced from The Crisis, And I'm going to home in on a poem by Edna Margaret Johnson. Yes, she was real. I checked. She was a white woman. I looked her up in the census. She was writing from the Midwest. And this is her poem published in the the crisis, A White Girl's Prayer. Just a few lines so that you get the idea. I need water for this. You'll see why in a minute. Okay. I writhe in self-contempt, O God. My Nordic flesh is but a curse. O bitter age, I'm ostracized by my own proud Caucasian clan, since I, among my friends, would have the youths of every race and caste. O God of life, remove this curse. The cords of shame are strangling me. Remorse is mine. I would atone for white superiority, sheer carnal pride of my own race. Tonight, on bended knees, I pray, free me from my despised flesh and make me yellow, bronze, or black. Some white women went much farther than Johnson And they tried to put Harlem at the center of their lives and even make lives for themselves in Harlem, tried to carve out a place for themselves within Harlem's volatile and complex ecology of race. It may be hard for us to imagine today what a bold and unlikely thing this was for them to do at the time. It was one thing for white men to go slumming, as it was then called in Harlem, where they could enjoy a few hours of exotic dancers and hot jazz and then grab a cab back downtown and skedaddle away from there. But it was another thing altogether for a white woman to embrace life on West 125th Street. Epitomizing everything that was unrespectable at a time when social respectability meant a great deal more than it does now, A white woman who embraced Harlem risked extraordinary disapproval and even social ostracism. In the 1920s, short of becoming a prostitute, there was no surer way for a white woman to invite derision than to eschew her own whiteness or be intimate with a black man or both. Miss Anne challenged her era's cherished axioms of racial identity. She pushed the idea that identity is affiliation, allegiance, and desire, rather than biology or blood, much farther than anyone else, and often much farther than she actually meant to do. I want to read briefly now from the chapter on one of the six women I focus on in this book, Josephine Cogdell Schuyler, and there's Josephine at about 16 years old, a white Texas heiress born to a very racist community and a very racist family. Her father was a charter member of the Klan who left her Texas background behind and married Harlem's most satirical black writer. 
not finding the acceptance in Black Harlem she had hoped for, she found other ways to insert herself into the community she sought. And over the course of the next decades of her marriage, Josephine Cogdale Schuyler passed as at least half a dozen other people. She did some of her husband's writing for him, but she also created persona that allowed her much freer reign in her identity. She wrote as a number of very racist young white Southern women under other pseudonyms to expose their thinking. But she also wrote as a woman named Julia Jerome, and this is my favorite. Julia Jerome was famous throughout the black community, not just in Harlem, but in the nation. Julia Jerome was the black and landers of her day. She was the advice columnist for the Pittsburgh Courier. No paper had a wider national circulation. She was the black woman to whom black women from across the country were, advi- were writing in for advice about raising their children, dealing with their husbands, dealing with their boyfriends, dealing with their fathers, fighting with their brothers. And black Julia Jerome, who had the privilege of telling black women all across the country how to conduct their intimate lives, was white Josephine Cogdell Schuyler. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit from chapter four, um, the, and the title of this chapter is The Fall of a Fair Confederate, which is a title she used. She wrote a number of times about crossing from racist Texas culture into black Harlem, and she used the title Fair Confederate with a lot of irony. My chapter begins with three epigraphs, but I just want to share one from you. They're all from Josephine's writing. She wrote throughout her life. And um, the first one is short and one of my favorites. Most of America is crazy on the race question. It almost did not happen. But late on a cloudy, unseasonably warm Friday in early January 1928, a petite, graceful, white Texas beauty named Josephine Cogdell slipped into the New York City Marriage License Bureau with her black lover, George Schuyler, Harlem's most biting satirist and a widely published journalist. A short, dark, elegant man with excellent manners, an arch wit, and a sardonic smile. They were exceptionally well-dressed, dignified, and mature, both in their early 30s, but they were being treated like children. Conducted from one corner of the municipal building to another by scowling officials, then rushed through the steps of their civil ceremony without explanation or congratulation. Agreeing justice of the peace, anxious to clear his desk and get home, read from a perfunctory script without looking up. George barely had time to peck Josephine's cheek before they were hustled outside again, where they found themselves standing on the stone steps, left alone to adjust to their new status under the muted colors of a winter sunset, slanting through Lower Manhattan's administrative buildings. Josephine looked up from under her new green hat, swayed and steadied herself with a gloved hand on George's arm. She had succumbed in a daze to the disappointing ceremony. Now the weight of racial intolerance seemed to be bearing down on her, demanding, as she put it, that she sacrifice, quote, everything I knew, and bid an emotional farewell to the white world. She feared that she would never again return to what she knew or be known for who she was. 
It felt like dying. I have dropped completely out of sight. No one in the white world knows my whereabouts or will ever know, she wrote. Now, Josephine was admittedly dramatic. And she would have acknowledged, I think, being theatrical about having to cast... There's Josephine in her Texas background with one of her many, many horses. And she would have acknowledged being theatrical about having to, as she put it, cast my lot henceforth with the Negro. But for all of her hyperbole, she was not understating the vertigo-inducing stakes of marrying George that day, especially for a woman from this background. The taboo against interracial intimacy, or miscegenation as it was still then called, was fundamental to maintaining myths of racial purity and difference. In 1928, blacks and whites lived in such different worlds that white women who married black men did undergo a kind of social death, often expelled from family, home, and community. As they attempted to enter a black world in which their presence would always, by necessity, be at least partly an unwelcome reminder of inequality and oppression, they often found themselves without kin, church, or familiar social networks. Many crossed over without knowing much about black cultural expectations or black history. Some knew only a few black people. And most were ill-equipped to face the hostile reaction they engendered or to fit into the new world they had chosen. Josephine and George were newspaper buffs. and You see them here in their living room reading the papers. To keep up with his competition, in fact, George sometimes read as many as a dozen papers a day. And Josephine had been reading the black papers since the early 1920s when she had departed Texas for San Francisco. In fact, they had met through the messenger in which she had published a number of poems, a white woman speaking about race, and which George Schuyler edited. Both were keenly aware that they were making themselves outcast. Their chief worry that day was keeping their marriage a secret from Josephine's family. My family is incapable of ever understanding my marriage as anything but insane and disgraceful, Josephine believed. During the Depression, George and Josephine became Harlem's most vocal proponents of intermarriage, advocating interracial intimacy as what they called the permanent solution to America's race problem. With Josephine's help, George became the most recognizable name in black journalism, a star. Their daughter, Philippa, born in 1931, very conveniently turned out to be a genius, and they immediately began to turn her into Exhibit A, proudly showing Philippa off as an example of the benefits of miscegenation and what they insisted were the superior intellectual qualities of biracial children. Josephine had very set and deeply weird ideas about both diet and child-rearing, which Philippa's musical talent helped her to disseminate, and which you'll have to get the book to find out more about. Prominent publications such as Life, Time, the New York Times, and the New Yorker, as well as Ebony, the Pittsburgh Courier, and many other national black magazines profiled the family. Josephine and George became the first interracial celebrity marriage in Harlem since the marriages of boxer Jack Johnson. And for the next two decades, the Schuylers were a national news item. America's strangest family, as one magazine put it. 
and it was a name that stuck. Amazingly enough, given the mainstream coverage, they were also kept a secret from the Texas Cogdells. Every Christmas, Josephine's father, D.C. Cogdell, sent his daughter in New York a huge box of pecans harvested from the family's trees. He never imagined that in their apartment in Harlem's Tony Sugar Hill, a black son-in-law was eating those nuts while reading Opportunity and writing about the absurdities of what George loved to call the pork skins, one of his many terms for white people. I think Josephine helped him create those, by the way. While a mulatta, as she would have been known then, granddaughter was in her room down the hall eating the pecans and practicing her piano. Josephine's sisters came to see Josephine in New York. They even visited her Harlem apartment, and yet they remained somehow unaware of both husband and daughter. Family mail was addressed either to Miss Josephine Cogdell or to one of Josephine's pen names, Heba Janeth. Heba Janeth is a very interesting pen name for Josephine, a very interesting persona, a much wilder, looser, freer, much more, more sort of uh, sexually adventurous new woman than Josephine ever was, actually. She loved writing as Heber Janeth. Every year, Josephine went home to Texas alone. No one asked questions. George found the studied silence remarkable. He decided to test it by writing about it in Modern Quarterly, a well-known socialist journal with a mostly white and a very national readership. It is incredible, he remarked, how long a mixed couple can be married, their marriage be well-known throughout Afro-America, and yet be unknown in the white world. Nothing more forcibly reveals the social chasm dividing the two races. In a world where blacks and whites led separate lives, Whites could afford not to know what they could not accept. And women like Josephine could hide not only in plain sight, but under Klieg lights. In addition to straddling the nation's contradictions over privacy and publicity, the Schuylers embodied all of their era's contradictory ideas about race itself. They became Harlem's most strident anti-essentialists, even arguing that the terms black and white, Negro and Caucasian should be outlawed as dangerous fictions. Sometimes they advocated all manner of passing and race crossing, believing that none of us have our own people distinct from others. At other times, they talked about we or us in ways that were inescapably racialized. There they are. There's the family at your table. Throughout their lives, the two principles of Harlem's interracial celebrity marriage oscillated among all the available positions on the race debates of their day. Is race blindness a goal or another form of racism? And that was being debated in the 20s almost as fiercely as it is today. Can one attack racial essentialism and still celebrate race difference? What, if anything, do we owe our own race? Can we switch races? opting for an identity based on affiliation rather than blood. Sometimes the oscillation between these positions brought them closer together. More often, it drove a wedge between them. And in that, too, the Schuylers mirrored the texture of political and emotional ties in Harlem. Carl Van Vechten, that's, uh, that's by the way, 
uh, a slide of Josephine just to remind you of where she came from on the family porch. And that's Josephine on the lap of her family cook. It looks like it was taken about 150 years earlier, right? And there she is in the life she chose on her Harlem roof. Carl Van Vechten, who I mentioned earlier, was one of the Schuyler's best friends. He paid a telling, telling tribute to his friend Josephine. In addition to being Harlem's most famous honorary Negro, Van Vechten was also an incurable pack rat, and he kept every scrap of paper that ever came his way, much to the horror of his poor wife, Fania. He particularly loved letters, and he collected tens of thousands of them. He wrote to any notable person you could think of from the 20s, 30s, and 40s. When it came time to turn his vast archive of letters over to the rare book and manuscript library at Yale University as the core of the collection that he created and named for his friend James Weldon Johnson, Van Vechten faced a difficult decision. Should he retain or should he discard the filing system that he had used at home and that had been important to him for decades? In Van Vechten's very careful filing system, every letter he kept, which means every letter he ever received, was meticulously categorized either under letters from blacks or under letters from whites. Now, this system was not merely a clerical convenience. Over the years, it has become one of the nation's best and also most secret resources for determining the race of little-known American figures because people often lied to census takers. But if you're doing the work we call archaeological recovery or recuperation, bringing back lost writers, and you find, let's say, an Edna Margaret Johnson, and you're not sure if you can trust what the census says, and you can't get many other records, and you want to find out, was this woman black or white? If she wrote to Carl Van Vechten, and you know where the secret record is at the Beinecke Library, you can find out. Because if he had a letter from her, he would have filed it meticulously and flawlessly, either under letters from blacks or letters from whites. There is only one exception to this vast, meticulous racial schema. All of Josephine's letters, Carl Van Vechten placed under B, letters from blacks. Just by the way, I think nobody but me had ever seen them because who would go looking for them there? Why did he do that? In part, I think it was an inside joke between fellow race crossers. In the same playful spirit, Josephine would sometimes refer to all four of them, Carl, Fania, George, and herself, all of them white except for George, as us darkies. But Van Vechten's sly miscategorization was also his homage to Josephine's effort. He put his friend where she did her best to fit in. Detractors and naysayers be damned. This tribute recognized that once she had married George and given birth to Philippa, she didn't belong anywhere. And she had crossed, she had ceased in an important sense to be white. Now, as a married bisexual and an honorary Negro hated by many whites, Van Vechten had a very keen sense of the costs but also of the joys of not fitting in. We do not have to look far, he was keenly aware, to find unhappy stories of people who free themselves from social categories only to find that they have nowhere to go. And I think he was very sensitive to that. On January 6th, 1928, 
as she stood on the steps of the municipal building, all of those challenges and questions were still in her future. Josephine's objective that darkening Friday winter afternoon was simpler. She was trying not to faint. Thank you, and I'd be happy to take questions. Very good presentation. At the beginning of your talk, you mentioned that there were Jewish women who were yes. like Miss Anne's and all that. Two questions. What, how were they involved? Were they treated equally on both sides, I would say? And actually also about the Jewish community in general. Were they aware that they're acting in that percent, too? So you're talking about three sides. Yes. African, general, Caucasian, and Jewish. How are they looked at? And one of the things that you'll find in this book is I do keep shifting the lens. So in this case, as in others, I look at this from a number of different angles. So the question was, um, how did the Jewish women who were active in Harlem, um, how were they seen and how did they sort of relate to their own background? The women in this book really run the gamut. I picked six women who represented all of the different categories, the ways white women tried to become part of the Harlem Renaissance, or as we would now say, tried to get over. Hostesses, patrons, activists, philanthropists, editors, wives, lovers, mothers, and so on. And I picked women who exemplify that range. I also picked women who exemplify a range from what we would call truly noble, women who were really had a highly developed anti-racist ideology, to women who were really quite cringeworthy and who make us very uncomfortable today. Um, I picked the six that I picked to cover that range, and also because I had to choose women for whom I could find something of an archive, women who had left enough letters or journals behind that I could let them speak in their own voices. There are three Jewish women who are important to the book, and they have very, very different relationships to their own Judaism. Fania Marinoff, Carl Van Vechten's wife, passed. Fania Marinoff was born Fanny Marinoff, to a lower middle class Jewish family in the Bronx. Um, would you mind turning off the flash next time on that? Thank you so much. Um, Fanny Marinoff wanted a career on stage, and she did not see that her that being Fanny from the Bronx was going to get her very far. So she did what many people in the 20s did and what many people did in Harlem, which is she said, I'm going to reinvent myself. And she became Russian Fanya. And as Russian Fanya, you have to say it that way, you know, with a scarf, as Russian Fanya, she actually had a really good, it was a B plus, but a really good long stage career. And she left her Judaism behind and her being the most famous of the interracial hostesses in New York actually allowed her to do that because it contributed to her exoticism. So actually her work as an interracial hostess and activist helped her pass as a non-Jew. Fanny Hurst, who had been born to a middle-class Jewish family in St. Louis and always said she would have given anything not to be a Jew, was able to use her activism, her activity in Harlem to become a white woman and to get away from being identified as a Jewish and a sentimental writer. She was thrilled with that. For Annie Nathan Meyer, who wrote this controversial play, Black Souls, and who was the founder of Barnard, being Jewish was very important to her, and it was a real sore point. 
Annie Nathan Meyer founds Barnard College. You've all heard of Barnard, right? So she founds Barnard College. And then for the rest of her life, Annie Nathan Meyer is in a lifelong struggle for the definite article. She wants to be referred to, and she's right, as the founder of Barnard, as she should be. And instead, she's always referred to as a founder or one of the founders. It drives her nuts, and she attributes it to anti-Semitism. She says, Barnard will not give me the definite article I seek, the founder, because I'm a Jew. And so she leaves behind working in Jewish causes and working in Jewish organizations to go work in Harlem and work on black civil rights where that won't be an obstacle. So that's just three examples of the range of ways in which identities are being played off against each other throughout this period. So you see Jewish identity being played off of white identity, being played off of black identity. You see female identity being played off of male identity. This is a, this is a story about how a very canny group of white women, and they are canny, they may be really complicated, but they're pretty canny, learn to play one set of identities off against another, in part to earn themselves a set of freedoms they might not have had either as women or as Jews. So it's a story of, of playing these off. Yeah. I was just wondering where the initial idea mm. came from. Where, you know, just thousands of things are written by, about the Harlem Renaissance, yeah. but this is just like totally. I have a 23-year-old here, and she was wondering um, just where, where, where it's the other side of the coin. It's, it's yeah. something different, just a little piece of something. Yeah. And um, what made you think of that? It, you know, it's a great question, um, and it's a good question for 23-year-olds, because I, I know one of the hardest things I teach also, you know, is coming up with the topic or the question or the thesis or the idea. Um, and I will admit, this one came to me in a student's PhD oral exam on Constance Coiner in American comedy. It had nothing to do, but, but it had been uh, fulminating for a long time. I, the book I did, which you were nice enough to mention, Greg, prior to this, was a collection of the letters of Zora Neale Hurston and also a cultural uh, biography of her life and her times. Now, Hurston was a black writer for whom white friendships were not just emotionally important, but they were actually symbolic because Hurston was a person who tended to swing really wildly between periods of deep, despairing pessimism about America's racial future. She just did not think we were ever going to get anywhere. To smaller moments of wild optimism. And in both cases, she would turn back to her friendships with white women as symbols of the future. These friendships were actually symbolic for her. They represented a kind of intimacy. They were not friendships of equals, but she still felt that they represented the future that was to come. So as I was working on the Hurston book, it was very important to me to know a lot about her white women friends. And the more I went looking for these white women, the more I started noticing there was nothing out there. Or if there was anything out there, like on Charlotte Osgood Mason, it repeated the same three paragraphs over and over and over again. Or if it was on Nancy Cunard, it would dismiss her time in Harlem in a page and a half, even though that's what she devoted her life to. So I kept looking to read a book on the white women of the Harlem Renaissance. I kept looking to read a book. I kept looking to, and finally I realized I had to write the book if I wanted to read the book. And that's where it came from. Okay. Yeah. 
As a uh, New Englander, I grew up in uh, Hartford, Connecticut. Um, in the 60s, the term uh, Miss Anne was used as an offensive term. Absolutely. It was not a compliment. Uh, if you wanted to offend someone uh, who worked for white uh, women especially, mm-hmm. um, it, that term was used at that time. Don't listen to her. She works for Miss Anne. That's exactly, exactly right. Exactly right. That's, that's right. Um, and you mentioned uh, when the Jewish women uh, did not consider themselves white, then what did they consider themselves? Oh, okay. So let me just say something about your um, I, uh, pointing out, and this is a really important reminder. I think it's one of the reasons that I, I've been told it's a bit of a cheeky title, because this is a book that uh, tries to rethink the full complexity of what these white women were doing, good, bad, and everything in between. And the title signals the negative. The title signals the fact that they were really up against not just the racism of white America, which said to them, if you do this, if you cross over, you cannot come home, we're done with you. That's it for you. But also the rightful, historically earned skepticism of the black community, which said, the last thing we need is a bunch of Miss Anns in Harlem, right? Um, but it was important to me to signal, even in the title, that the book was not just a celebration and not just a condemnation, because that's what these women were up against. They didn't want to be Miss Anne. So you're exactly right about that. Um, whites were not, sorry, I said that backwards. Jews were not considered or seen as white people until the very late 1930s throughout American culture. They were not seen as blacks, but they were not considered whites. And there were all sorts of strategies by which some Jews, if what they were seeking were the privileges of whiteness, material and immaterial, um, tried to sort of move into that. Um, Italians, by the way, and Irish were not initially considered white when they came to the United States either. So for some of these women... You know, there's a very long history of complicated black-Jewish relations that goes back to this period. Because on the one hand, since Jews were not considered white and were often discriminated against, there were lots of occasions for a kind of an empathy across various kinds of oppressions. But in Harlem, much of the real estate had been owned by Jews, particularly the stores, and blacks were crowded into tiny spaces, charged three times what Jews had been charged, and many of the stores remained under Jewish ownership and did not employ blacks. So this is a very vexed history. And there were white Jewish women who were attempting to to be part of a corrective to that um, at a very, very complicated moment. Um, let me go back here and there, and then if we can, we'll come back. So, yeah. Yes, I was just curious as to whether or not you were able to ascertain in your research that these women had rebellious natures. Um, as you were speaking all along, yeah. I'm thinking, you know, what was their real interest? Was it a curiosity? Were they enthralled with black culture, black life, or were they just being rebels, if you will, um, and so, attention-getting in, in yes. a sort as well? Um, so, I mean, one answer is yes. I could just say yes to the way you phrased that. But let me, let me um, give a more, a slightly lengthier answer. Um, one of the things that held my attention and kept me living with these women for the seven years it took me to research the book was that I found to my surprise, and I was really shocked about this, that even the most retrograde among them, even the ones who really 
did the worst job of trying to leave behind their own racist upbringings and pasts and presuppositions, all had the idea that whiteness was a problem and that they should take responsibility for it. And that was a really unlikely thing for them to have developed at this time. So they came into Harlem with a range of motives and intentions. There was not a one of them, pardon the coming double negative, there was not a one of them who didn't have some selfish motives. Every single one of the women I write about was looking for more freedom than the social script for women could afford her. Even the ones who really do emerge in this book most as sort of models and as people we can say were exemplary in their racial attitudes. So Mary White Ovington, let me, let me dump a factoid on you in case you don't know it. White founder of the NAACP, I want to say that again, yeah. Co-founder, yeah. but she was a white founder of the NAACP, right? Not everybody knows that. Mm-hmm. Um, comes from Brooklyn Heights, upper middle class, progressive background. And she becomes involved in social rights, uh, in civil rights very, very early on. In part because she raised as a woman in a family of doers, in a family of people who are making their mark, and this is very much true of Annie Nathan Meyer also, she looks at what she can do as a woman and she says, whoa, this is way too circumscribed. Where can I go and do more and not get held down? And when she goes to, to first not, it's actually, it's not Harlem, but when she first gets involved in black civil rights, it's so unusual for a woman of her background to do that that there's nobody to tell her what to do, and she is buying a kind of freedom. Does she do very good things with it? She does. She does really good things with it. Does she have unselfish motives? Of course not. And every one of the women I'm writing about, is, is, it's a story of trade-offs, of what they're getting and what it costs them. The, um, the only person who I really found I could have no moments or almost no moments of sympathy for was Fanny Hurst, because for her, it's all selfish motives. Fanny Hurst comes, writes her one book about African Americans, and there's only one. It's just imitation of life, which is not only the worst treatment of passing I can possibly imagine. She gets everything wrong. The passing, the passing story, blacks passing for whites, had served the black community for over 100 years as a way to say, all right, you think white culture, everyone's telling you it's superior, let's put our character there and see what it's like. And the character always longs to go back to the black community. Fanny Hurst didn't get that. She didn't understand it was about saying, oh, there's nothing over there we need. She didn't get that. And she just took and took and took from, from Black Harlem. Everything for her was selfish motives. But she was really the only one who I would say that was true of. All the others also gave back. And, and the more I read about them doing that, the more I thought how true that remains, that people who do good things do good things for selfish motives. Right? So it's complicated. Um, I saw a hand... Uh, yes, um, I hadn't been in Harlem in quite some time and went recently. Oh. I was quite yeah. surprised to see uh, white tourists by the busloads oh, yeah. in Harlem, wrapped three, four deep around iconic buildings in Harlem, yeah. waiting for hours. Uh, and I'm wondering if your uh, the timeliness of your book has to do with that resurgence of interest in Harlem by the white community. Well, you know, Harlem is, is being gentrified like crazy. Uh, it's, it's about to tip, right? It's about to tip now to majority white, and everything is going to change. 
Um, as I was getting, as I was finishing up this book, I realized that what I needed to do was take was go on a bunch of Harlem tours and see what people imagine when they're coming to Harlem and what they want to see. And one of the things I found is many of the tourists are Europeans and Asian, and they have these very set ideas about Harlem. They also think it's a scary place. Um, uh, and you're right, they're being taken on very selective trips. They're being shown a very selective history. The TV shows we're getting, the movies we're getting. It's a very, very selected Harlem. Um, I discovered on the tours, at least that I went on, that primitivism is alive and well. You know, primitivism is this notion that white culture is depleted, washed out, arid, lacking in some kind of vital energy, needs, you know, a different kind of juice than it has, and what it has to do is channel energies from primitive peoples. The modernist painters, some of them look to Tahiti, some of them look to the American Southwest, many of them look to Africa. That notion... Um, still lives, right? People see Harlem as some place that is revitalizing, that, you know, has a kind of uh, uh, an energy that they can take almost medicinally. Now, that notion was really crucial to the interracialism that fueled the Renaissance in the 20s. And part of what's so complicated the Harlem Renaissance is that there was so much primitivism that was bringing in the support that allowed the Renaissance to also flourish as a movement of self-definition and self-determination. Um, and it was very complicated to sort of parse out who was just a primitivist because e there were also black primitivists. There were not, it was not just that there were only white primitivists. The other thing that complicates it in my book and complicates this story is that the primitivist ideology was gendered. Um, sorry for that academic way of putting it, but it was very different for men and for women. Blackness in this period in, in mainstream America, which is to say white America, is understood as a pollutant and a contagion. White men are told that they are relatively inured from that contagion if they're careful. So they are actually encouraged by the primitivist ideology to go to Harlem or places like it and take medicinal doses of blackness to revitalize their white masculinity. That does not apply to white women. White women are being told quite the opposite, that if they approach too closely, they'll darken their complexions, they'll become black. Um, the... Nancy Cunard's FBI file describes her as a white woman who had gone Negro. Um, so uh, one of the things that I was interested to try to suss out, if I possibly could when I was on these tours, is if this notion, A, lives, you know, is primitivism alive and well, does it remain different for men and women? That was harder to tell. It was really easy to read this in the 20s because it was so explicit. It was a little harder to tell now. But um, Harlem's a very changed place. Uh, we have time for one more question from somebody who hasn't asked one yet or somebody who would like to ask a second one. I just wanted to make a statement. I recall in the 60s in Hartford, Connecticut, a uh, community that I grew up in, that it was a Jewish uh, community that assisted African-Americans and 
integrating uh, communities around the uh, metropolitan area by buying the houses and then quick claiming them yes. uh, to their African-American friends. Yes. And, and I'm really glad you mentioned that because I don't want to leave people with the impression that the vexed history of black-Jewish relations is, is only a negative history. There's also been a long, important history of identification and collaboration um, and I mean it, it permeates in so many ways uh, Greg referred to the fact that I'm one of the white scholars in black studies uh, there are not many I'm not I didn't invent this there are quite a number of white scholars in black studies the preponderance of us are Jews right so there's something to be said about that too anyway thank you so much for listening <laughs> <laughs>